a very good morning. Now, throughout history, throughout the history of man, man himself had tried to thwart God's plan and purposes. God had decreed His will and purpose in the beginning of man's history, right in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve had fallen, that disobeyed God and rebelled, God first put, put in place a redemption plan to redeem man and woman to Himself. Yet on this journey of faith with God, in our journey, it is not all smooth and easy. When it is smooth and easy, we can all say, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. But when things turn bad, we ask, where is God? Good times, God is here. Bad times, where is God? The reality is, God is here with us all the time. The Jews face a time of suffering under the Babylonians. We've been reading the book of Daniel. The question at the back of their mind is, did God abandon them? Did God break His covenant of everlasting love for His people? That's what we are studying in the book of Daniel. And now let us go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for gathering us here this morning. This is a wonderful time for us to worship you corporately. It is a wonderful time for us to study your word. For you remind us that your word is living and active. Your word is sharper than any double-edged sword. Your word penetrates even to divining soul and spirit joints and marrow. Your word judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. So Lord, it is a great privilege for all of us to be able to come before your word. And so we ask, Father, that may your word speak clearly to us this morning. For some who badly needed the assurance of your word that can bring comfort to them, let your word speak to them. For others, it may be that they need your word to convict them. And they need to change. They need to repent. Let your word speak to them. And yet for many others, we ask, Lord, that may your word address the challenge that they are facing. May your word instruct them as they move forward. So, Father, we ask that you teach us and we lift our prayers to you in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. The background of Daniel, the book of Daniel is this. Now Israel, the, at that time in, in the, the God's plan for Israel, now, the Israel, the northern kingdom, had fallen to Assyria in 722 BC. And in the book of Daniel, we are addressing the southern kingdom, Judah. Judah had fell to the Babylonians in 536 BC, bondage of 70 years. Now, at this point of time, God's judgment for his people, both Israel and Judah, Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom, God's judgment was complete. Now, who are the key players in the book of Daniel? First of all, Daniel. Daniel means God is my judge. 
Daniel is a young boy at the time. He was taken by Nebuchadnezzar from Judah to Babylon. The next person we're going to talk about is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is the Babylonian god. And Nebuchadnezzar means to protect my son or to protect my boundary. And he is a very self-conceited man that God brought to judge the people of Israel. As a result of Israel's persistent rebellion against God and her failure to heed the warnings of the prophets, God raises up Babylon to defeat and destroy Judah through a series of military campaigns. In chapter 1, Daniel and his three friends were taken captive and deported to Babylon to serve the courts and palace of King Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 2, after Daniel interpreted the king's dream about the great statue made out of different materials, each layer representing different Gentile world powers, Nebuchadnezzar paid homage to God. But then in verse 46 of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and he says, Surely your God is the God of gods and a Lord of lords and a rewarder of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this, mis- this mystery to us. So all is good in chapter 2. But when you come to chapter 3, and that was last week, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar erected a golden statue and commanded the people to bow down and worship it or face the death sentence by fire. Now, at this point, Nebuchadnezzar put himself beyond the realm of authority that God had given to all men. In chapter 3, verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar said to the three friends, he said, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. And then he said, Now if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery and bagpipe and all kinds of music, when you heard that, fall down and worship the image that I have made. Very well. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? We read last week that the intense heat and flames which smote the king's servants, the soldiers, did not so much as singe a hair on one of these three Hebrews. Not even the smell of fire was on them. Three men went into the furnace, but Nebuchadnezzar saw four men. Today we come to chapter 4. God's final dealing. This is God's final dealing with King Nebuchadnezzar. From chapter 4, 5 onwards, there's a change of king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a great tree that reaches to the sky. And then this tree was later chopped down by a divine lumberjack, a divine messenger. Now, this chapter is told in part by King Nebuchadnezzar himself, uh, verses 1 to 18. And Nebuchadnezzar confesses his arrogance and pride and his humbling by the sovereign hand of God. If you have your bulletin, you can track along with me. God's sovereignty is a theme. The theological theme of the book of Daniel is God's sovereignty. In Daniel chapter 4, 25 and chapter 5, 21, almost identical, these two verses. The most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms of man. God's sovereignty is a theme. And the climax of God's sovereignty is described in Revelation 11. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation 11 verse 15. Now, whatever sovereignty the king of Babylon 
possessed was a limited sovereignty. Number one. Number two is a delegated sovereignty. The king's position and power was not due to his greatness, but rather due to the greatness of God who gave him this position of power. And so just as the king's position of greatness was given to him by God, it was also to be taken and the king humbled for seven years. We'll talk more about it later. The majesty and splendor the king once enjoyed will be exchanged for the humiliation of beastly appearance and conduct. All of this was to be for the king's good, for our purpose, to teach him humility. Nebuchadnezzar was to learn that human sovereignty is bestowed upon men through divine sovereignty. Chapter 4, verse 25, the later part. Until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestowed it on whomever he wishes. We're going to talk about three points this morning. The first point I want to draw your attention to is God wants Nebuchadnezzar from verses 1 to 27. Now in verse 1 to 3, Nebuchadnezzar's letter is addressed to peoples, nations, and languages. Now this is the same group summoned to bow down to the golden image in Daniel chapter 3. The same group of people, the peoples, nations, and languages. In the early part, they are supposed to bow down to the image, but this time around, they are supposed, at the end of the letter, to bow down to God. It's amazing. Now, signs and wonders now shift to signs and wonders of the Most High God has done for me. Now we see the change in Nebuchadnezzar from being a persecutor of the faithful. Nebuchadnezzar has now become a witness to the faith. The faith of Daniel and his three friends. More importantly, the faith of God and impacting the Babylonian world empire. Verse 10 to 16 talk about Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a topple tree, a tree that was chopped down. Now this dream concerns Nebuchadnezzar's own need his own need to acknowledge that God, that the God of Israel is the one who rules the affairs of mankind. And through humiliation, he learns the lesson that God is sovereign. Now, description of the tree. You can read it in verse 10 to 16. Now, verse 10 says like this. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong. And his top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Can you imagine that? I showed you the picture just now. That means through the ends of the earth, people can see the tree. I can't imagine how big the tree is. But through the ends of the earth, people can see the tree. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Again, can you imagine that? A tree that is not only gigantic, but a tree that provides fruit. For all, not for some. Now under it, under the shade of the tree, the beast of the air lived in its branches. And from it, every creature was fed. And verse 13, in the vision, I saw while lying in my bed, I looked and there before me was a messenger, a holy one. Some of your versions talk about a watcher. Coming down from heaven, now, this person called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Verse 15, but let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven 
and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. We described the tree for you just now. It says the top of the tree touches the sky. It is an immense tree, but eventually it was chopped down. This tree actually represents Nebuchadnezzar. Because in verse 22 it says, It is you, O king, the image of the cosmic tree. Because that, at the center of the universe at that time was Babylon. And on top of Babylon sits the ruler of Babylon himself, Nebuchadnezzar. And this cosmic tree, the worldwide tree, speaks of Nebuchadnezzar's might and power. What did God warn Nebuchadnezzar about? God warned that he would be driven from the throne and his people. Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 23, we find that he will not only lose his power and glory, but also his rationality, which distinguishes him as human. This poor king was driven out from his palace and from his people. But there's more. In the midst of God's warning, for Nebuchadnezzar, there is a twofold message of hope. Number one, this humbling of God would bear the fruits of repentance after seven times passed by for him. Seven times. We talk about seven times later. But there is hum- this humbling by God would bear fruit of repentance. So there's a hope. Verse 25 says, When Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that God controls the universe and human kingdoms and that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't, then God will restore his kingdom. That's hope number one. There's another message of hope in the midst of God's warning. And that is, Nebuchadnezzar can avoid the fate. He can avoid the fate by breaking away from his iniquities to repent. Verse 27 says, Therefore, O king, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and showing mercy to the oppressed. Can you imagine Daniel is a Jew? He's a Jew who believed in the one true God, Yahweh. Was telling Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king who does not worship Yahweh, that this pagan king should conform to the moral standards that Daniel had learned from God. Can you imagine? We will call this intolerant today. Now this appeal to repentance implied that the fate depicted for Nebuchadnezzar in the dream was not inevitable. You see? It was not inevitable. It provided that Nebuchadnezzar repent. And so it provided Nebuchadnezzar with an opportunity to repent of his pride. If he humbled himself, God will not need to humble him further. And so we learn that even pagan rulers, people who do not believe in God, even these people are accountable to God. God wants Nebuchadnezzar. What happened? From verse 29 onwards, from 28 to 33, it talks about God's judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 29, a year went by. After the warning, one year has passed by, but Nebuchadnezzar was unchanged. 
The view from the royal palace of Babylon included numerous honored temples, the hanging gardens, for example, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which Nebuchadnezzar built for his wife. Now, it's quite natural, quite natural for all of us to feel good about ourselves. In fact, verse 30, he says, as he looked at the notable accomplishments, he boasted to himself of his mighty power and glory. He says this, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Very natural. Very human. Very normal, isn't it? But natural doesn't mean that it is right. To be natural doesn't mean it is right. Pride went to Nebuchadnezzar's head. We should be careful. We should watch out. So immediately the sentence of judgment was announced a voice from heaven pronounced this. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's royal authority was taken from him as he was driven away from the palace. He ate grass and lived wild in the open like the beasts of the field. He grew his hair and nails unchecked, not like the hippies, unchecked like the birds of the air in verse 33. He loses three things, or he lost three things. Number one, sanity. Number two, semblance. Number three, splendor. Can you imagine? Imagine with me. A person who lost his sanity, his semblance and splendor. It speaks of the image of God. God created man in his image. That's why we are different from animals. We can think. We can make decisions. We are rational. When Christ came, he came in the form of man. Human beings like you and I. Poor King Nebuchadnezzar lost the semblance to humanity. And of course, he's lost his splendor. This picture will show you how he looks like. Not like a hippie. Because actually his nails grew like the claws of a bird and the scales on his body. And he did not walk upright. He walked like an animal. In fact, he ate grass from rice to grass. Can you imagine that? God warns Nebuchadnezzar, but in the midst of warning, there is hope for repentance. God offers two hope for him. But he disobeyed God. He was still boastful. And one year later, God humbled him. But that's not the end of the story. We look from verse 34 to 37. Now at the end of God's appointed time of judgment, God actually exalted, restored Nebuchadnezzar to the place he was before. Nebuchadnezzar at the time Raise his eyes this is after seven years. Okay, now what is seven times I've mentioned just now? Seven times the time is the season. All right, as you know, the season is usually one year after the other, not the four season we're talking about. So when you say the times, the next time we one year later, and so seven times means seven years. Now, after seven years, Nebuchadnezzar raised his eyes to heaven and his sanity, his faculty, his reason was restored. Once he was brought down by God crawling like an animal, eating grass with the cows. But now he was brought back to the heights. And not only that, restored to control his kingdom, demonstrating that God, the sovereign God, is able both to humble the proud and to exalt the humble. The great and mighty persecutor of Israel, as I mentioned just now, was humbled by God's grace and brought back to confess God's mercy. If you 
Turn your eyes to the Bible at verse 36. It says, At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles set, sought me out and I was restored to my throne. I'll read this. And became even greater than before. When God humbled him, humbled him like an animal, when God restored him, not to his previous state, but greater than before. And then what happened in verse 34? It says, Nebuchadnezzar blessed the Most High and praised and honored God who lives forever. God restored and exalted Nebuchadnezzar, sanity, throne and kingdom. But most important of all, God showed Nebuchadnezzar that God is a sovereign God and Nebuchadnezzar ought to come before God in homage and worship. God sovereign. Pagan kings or non-pagan kings, we think we are sovereign. Not, that is not true. So this passage tells us that God warns, God actually warns. With this warning, He gives a way out. But when you do not hear God's warning, God judges. And for this proud man, God humbles him. When he repented after seven years, God exalted him to where he was before and even greater. God's sovereignty, as we conclude today's study, God's sovereignty is clearly revealed in the scriptures. But it often takes a sequence of adverse circumstances before it becomes a part of our conscious and conscientious belief and behavior. God's sovereignty is clearly spoken, clearly taught in the Bible. And today's passage shows us that God is very patient. He progressively reveals himself, who he is, to Nebuchadnezzar. Chapters 1 all the way to chapters 4. Chapter 4. But it often takes a sequence of adverse circumstances before it becomes a part of our conscientious belief and behavior. Nebuchadnezzar was a man of great military and political power. Under his rule, Babylon dominated all other world powers of that day. He defeated and destroyed Jerusalem, of course, Judah and led most of the Jews into Babylonian captivity. Now the people of Judah seemed insignificant and important against such a great man as Nebuchadnezzar, and indeed they were. Nebuchadnezzar is like the tree, reaches to the sky, provides for everybody, for everything, for everyone. All over the world they can see his power and his might. Now, so under the bondage and the rule of the Babylonians, the Jews were exposed to a culture and lifestyle where God is seemingly absent and replaced with a cruel and powerful earthly king. We recall in chapter 1 of Daniel, they were asked to eat certain food and they abstained from it. You must remember, this is a culture that is not following the covenant, the Mosaic law. Their food were obviously offered to idols, not to God. And when they killed the animal, they did not follow the instruction of God. There's blood all over it. They do it in a way that is an affront to God. The Jews were exposed to a culture and lifestyle where God is seemingly absent. In his place, in God's place, is a cruel and powerful king to tell them what to do. Over and over again, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar sought to thwart God's plan. Who the people of 
put the people of uh, the Jews, people of God under his command and control. And so at this time, the Jews needed to know if God is still in control and if God still cares. When good times are here, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. When bad times, where is God? The Jews needed to know if God is still in control and if God still cares. Oh, the answer is yes. God still cares and God is still in control of things. God has been and will always be in control. And God is still the ruler, not only of the Jews, but also of the whole world as seen seen in today's passage. God is still in control. The people were deported. The northern kingdom to Assyria, southern kingdom to, to Babylon. But God had not suffered defeat in allowing Israel's fall. But was provisionally working God's sure purposes toward an eventual full display of the exalted Christ. We read in just now the uh, scripture reading, Hebrews, uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 11 to 13. The Jews needed to know if God is still in control. Yes, God is still in control. God has not suffered defeat. Now, God sovereignly allowed the unbelieving Gentiles. Remember, the Jews and now they move into the Gentile world, deported in the Gentile world. God sovereignly allowed the unbelieving Gentiles to dominate Israel. Babylon in 605 to 539 BC, the Middle Persia Empire, 539 to 331 BC, and Greece, followed by Rome, and all the way to the second coming of Christ. Is God still in control? Is God sovereign? Abraham Kuyper says this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. We are all under the control of God, the rule and authority of God. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, mine. The sovereignty of God was the truth the disobedient Jews in Babylon needed to understand. Because of their idolatry, God punished them and sent them into exile under the hands of Assyria for the northern kingdom and Babylon for the southern kingdom. The Jews at that time worshipped idols instead of the one and only true and living God. The sovereign one who does not cry, mine. What did God say in Isaiah 44 verse 6? God says, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 44 verse 6. And 45 verse 5. God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God beside me. God beside Yahweh. The Jews were deported. They were judged because of their idolatry. And so throughout the history of Israel, God used the pagan nations to accomplish His purposes. For example, God used Egypt to to preserve the nation of Israel for 400 years before they were to possess Canaan, the promised land. God, at the time, used the heartedness of Pharaoh to display God's greatness and power. God used the surrounding nations to chasten Israel when the nation fell into sin and disobedience. We talk about Assyria and Babylon. God used the pagan nations to judge His people. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar was even called God's servant. You can find this in Jeremiah 25, verse 9. Nebuchadnezzar was called by God as God's servant. Now, God taught Nebuchadnezzar 
and all of us today that one's position and power, your position and power is God-given and a manifestation of God's greatness. Reflecting God's greatness when God gives you power and position, not man's greatness. Daniel 4 verse 16, 17 says like this, God lifts up those whom He wishes and He sets over it the lowliest of men. One's position and power are God-given. These are privileges. Therefore, those who are in authority ought to remember that power and position are privileged from God of which we should not be proud but employ our God-given power and our position for the glory of God and for the good of His people. I see many of you here probably looking at me in the eyes and say, I don't have power. I don't have position. Now those who are not endowed with authority can take comfort and ultimately that we are under God's rule. And because God is holy and righteous, we can put our trust and confidence in God for the outcome. We are not, many of us are not Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, we are more like Daniel and the Jews under the dominion of someone greater than us. If you are not endowed with authority, with position and power, take comfort that ultimately we are under God's rule because God is holy and righteous. We can put our trust and confidence in God for the outcome. Now, God's sovereignty means something. God's sovereignty means His plans for us is this, for I know the plans for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. God's sovereignty is not just over the whole world, but God's sovereignty also means that He actually cares for us. He's rooting for us. No, but God's sovereignty also means that our lives can expect to face good as well as bad things. Sovereignty of God doesn't mean that only good things happen to us. We come here every Sunday without a load of burden. We come here to be encouraged by God's word and go back into the world and meet again next Sunday. God's sovereignty over our lives means that good as well as bad things can and do of, very often happen. But good or bad, God is in control. We sang the song, God is a God of faithfulness without injustice. Good and upright is He. God is a God of faithfulness without injustice, good and upright. We can trust Him, trust and obey not flex and obey. We trust God, we obey Him. We don't flex and we obey Him. What's the application? The application for all of us this morning is to center your life on who God is and what He is doing. Center your life on God, on, on God, who He is and what He is doing because He's sovereign over us. And so, if God has endowed you with power and, and authority and position, do you use them? to advance God's agenda or do you use them to advance your own agenda? If God has placed you in a, in a position of authority, whether in the workplace, whether at home, whether in the community, whether in, in school, do you use them, this special God-given privilege, to advance God's agenda on your own? Now, you may think that only successful people will have this problem of acknowledging God's absolute rule and authority. Only successful people forget about who is in charge. 
Not necessarily so. People who are not so successful and accomplished in life do face the same challenge of letting God rule their lives because they may become so discouraged and frustrated that they walk out, walk away from God and they decide to take matters into their own hands. So they turn violent and usurp the authority that God has placed over their lives. And so if God had placed you under adverse circumstances or under an authority where God's presence is needed, would your belief, would your behaviour reflect God's rule and authority and not man's rule and authority? That's our application. Those in authority and responsibility, use them to advance God's agenda. Those not in authority, our attitude and behaviour ought to reflect God's rule and control over our lives, not men's. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word talks about pride of a king, a pagan king, who ought not to make any difference to all of us, but yet, Lord, you care for him deeply. Over four chapters, we saw how your hand was at work. We pray, Lord, even as we think deeply and meditate over what was written in your word, help us to apply it into our lives as you see fit. We saw how the Jews, your people, as they see the lives of Daniel, as they see the lives of Daniel and his three friends, they see your faithfulness. They also see your triumph and victory when they see King Nebuchadnezzar eventually turning around. We thank you, Father, for your rule over our lives. For some of us, you have given them the authority and responsibility. Help them to carry out your rule over the individuals, over the family, over the church, over our nation, over the world. For some of us, you have allowed them to face injustice and difficulties at home, in school, in their neighbourhood, or at work. Help them to remain faithful and trusting you to make things right in your perfect timing. Thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. And we thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise for the song response.